Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England. Episode 101, The King of France and England. So, last week, Edward had finally managed to leave the shores of Old Blighty and sail for the continent in July 1338. Today, we're going to take that story up to the political crisis of 1340-41. to Our overall story is that despite one cast-iron, honest-to-goodness, copper-bottomed victory... This is an enormously difficult period for Edward. Like pretty much every medieval king we've come across so far, especially the Plantagenets, Edward has a very high view of his dignity and the dignity of his office. In 1338, one often the first flush of youth, at 26 years of age, Edward has not troubled to look under the bonnet and study the engine of government. Essentially, he expected his officials to provide the resources he needed and when he needed them. End of story. Between 1338 and 41, Edward learns the lesson that life is a bit more complicated than that. In 1338, there are two clear planks to Edward's strategy, if you can have clear planks, one of which will stay constant throughout the Hundred Years' War, and the other which will be pretty quickly abandoned. The first was expressed nice and clearly in a letter to the Pope and the College of Cardinals. Here are Edward's own words. According to the theory of war, which teaches that the best way to avoid the inconveniences of war is to pursue it away from one's own country, it is more sensible for us to fight our notorious enemy in his own realm. Throughout the glory days and the dark days, this never changes, and means that the impacts of the Hundred Years' War are always more terrible for the French than for the English. The other plank we've mentioned a couple of times It's the plank to fight with enemies around the northern borders of France. This strategy seems pretty sensible, but in fact, very quickly leads Edward into choppy waters. Which is odd, because on the face of it, in 1338, when Edward arrived at Antwerp, things were looking good for Edward and his Grand Alliance. His main diplomats had built an impressive coalition, delivering an army of 7,000 men from various lords, large and small. There's a list on the website interestingly enough, but they range from the Duke of Brabant and the Holy Roman Emperor, pretty important folk, to the Margrave of Brandenburg. And surely you would think it's got to be easier and cheaper to get other people to provide an army than it is to do it yourself, wouldn't you? Well, that would be a no. In fact, the cost was absolutely stonking. £160,000 for those 7,000 troops alone. Meanwhile, Edward had to maintain a household and an army on the continent in Brabant himself. By 1341, the strategy had cost over £400,000. Edward simply didn't understand that these were sums the poor little old England simply couldn't afford at this time, or at least didn't have the machinery to raise. 
Let us not forget, by the way, that England is one-third the size of France in terms of population. It's David and Goliath stuff. Except in this story, it's David with something of a chip on his shoulder. Nor did it help that, unfortunately, these allies were not the most enthusiastic in the world. They wanted money, or no deal, and they really had no other motivation to give them any great community of interest. But maybe worst of all, these alliances tied Edward down and took away his freedom of action. Everything had to be agreed with them. He couldn't take one step towards France without their full agreement. 1338 gave an excellent example of all the pains and agonies Edward was to be subjected to. He'd expected he'd arrive, chat with his allies, pay them their money and their joint armies would advance into France to universal glory and possibly a glorious sunset. And indeed, Philip himself was worried enough to expect the same thing to be happening. And so in August, Philip took the traditional route of the French kings between the 12th and 15th century. He travelled to the Abbey at Saint-Denis to the northwest of Paris and received the Oriflamme, the massive orange banner that showed that France was going to war. He then went to join the main body of the French army at Amiens in northern France but it never happened. Edward did indeed meet with his friends once they arrived, who slightly brutally pointed out that it was all very well talking about taking on the French, but as yet they'd not been paid, and in fact their payments were late. There then followed a most undignified period, where Edward and his councillors in Brabant scratch around in the dirt to find whatever money they can. They got £8,000 from the Bardi and the Peruzzi banking houses, both of which, by the way, are now sliding towards destruction. An Italian administrator gave them another £8,000. William Poole gave them over £60,000 against the revenues of the wool customs duty. Edward found any lender he could find, some of them charging 50% interest. And get this, he pawned the great crown of England. Or no, get this instead, he licensed the monks of Devon to start digging for buried treasure. And meanwhile, back at home, England was in the grip of deflation because bullion was being sucked out of the country and was now increasingly difficult to find anyway. Now, this was not what Edward expected, and even at this distance of time, you can feel his pain and embarrassment. He just didn't understand it. The way it worked was that you told your advisers and officials what you wanted, and they made it happen, while you went and fought for love and glory. I have been badly advised, he snarled at the Bishop of Lincoln, otherwise known as his adviser, because the only explanation he was able to come up with was that it must be that his officials were lazy and incompetent. After all, it surely couldn't be his fault. He was a king. A king! Armed with the little money he had, he pleaded with his allies to attack anyway, and they found excuses. And meanwhile, the Holy Roman Emperor was showing every sign of backing out. To give him his due. When the brown stuff hits the fan, Edward got going. Edward had Chatspar and Brio in plenty. He saw very clearly that if the Holy Roman Emperor legged it, it would be curtains for his alliance. So he gathered every penny he could scrape together, which was about £7,500, and travelled down the Rhine to meet Ludwig the Emperor, showering money and gifts as he went. And you know, it worked. Ludwig was impressed. 
It reminds me of that story about that famous businessman who persuaded banks to invest in him by hiring a room of computers and people to sit at them, even though he actually didn't have a business at all. I can't remember who that was, of course. But the point is that it was all about confidence and display. By the end of September, Edward had been made a vicar of the Holy Roman Emperor, and at least the alliance was still in existence. Using his newfound authority, he called a meeting with his allies. But they still wouldn't move. In fact, the Duke of Brabant hadn't even bothered to turn up. So Edward had to accept that 1338 was a washout. It was worse than that, actually. It was a bad year for all four theatres of the war. Northern France, as we've heard, was a washout. In Scotland, as we've heard, Black Agnes saw William Montague off while mocking him from the walls of Dunbar. In south-west France, the only reason it wasn't a complete disaster was because the French didn't push it hard enough. The Seneschal Oliver Ingram still didn't have two beans to rub together, just to mix my metaphors, so a local army couldn't be raised, and morale in the garrisons was low from lack of pay. Plus, William Clinton, the Earl of Huntingdon, had been due to bring 1,000 sorely needed men-at-arms from England, but the expedition was cancelled. The French attacked from southeast and north. In the southeast, though, they allowed themselves to be held up at the strategically irrelevant fortress of Penn, built by Richard the Lionheart, by the way. In the north, in the Saintonge, Ingram's energetic defence managed to restrict the French to the capture of just one castle. Essentially, the English got away with it. The reason they got away with it was a recurring problem of French strategy. Philip wasn't prepared to commit major armies to two theatres at once. So the people who should have been fighting his war in the southwest, the Counts of Armagnac and Foix, were both called north to Amiens to guard against any move by Edward from the north. France's biggest success was in the fourth theatre, the sea. Philip's agents successfully recruited Genoese galleys to add to the French Royal Navy, and indeed from the Grimaldi of Monaco. Against the cumbersome, privately recruiting approach of the English fleets, this navy was effective and fast. It dominated the seas off Gascony, destroying merchant shipping. And it swept the Channel. In September, the Channel Islands were raided and occupied. Two of Edward's finest ships, the Cogs Edward and Christopher, were taken, along with five merchantmen with their cargoes of wool. But Foissard records the worst English defeat. Sir Hugh Quiré set out with their fleet, which carried at least a thousand fighting men and sailed for England, coming into Southampton Harbour one Sunday morning when the people were at mass. The Normans and Genoese entered the town and pillaged and looted it completely. They killed many people and raped a number of women and girls, which was a deplorable thing. Nonetheless, Edward went into winter quarters and dispersed his army into small groups around the towns of Brabant. Many deserted for lack of pay, or even, as Edward admitted to his council, quote, for want of food to eat. In England equally, morale was low in the winter of 1338-9. Tax collection was widely resisted. But much worse was the impact of purveyance of supplies for the army. We've met this before under the name of prees, the right of the king to food and supplies taken by force. The problem, of course, being that the price or compensation was often rubbish if payment came at all. Meanwhile in Antwerp, Edward was surrounded by a group of administrators all seeking to carry out the royal strategy and convince him he was doing a great job. 
Not all of them were completely convinced. The Earl of Salisbury, for example, was horrified by the price. But as Edward thrashed around like a ferret in a sack to move his lumbering coalition forward, he became increasingly isolated from England and the problems the administration there faced in trying to answer his increasingly desperate demands. And Edward continued to show the sensitivity of a rhino, simply handing out high-handed, unenforceable orders and assuming his ministers were at fault when it didn't happen. In a fit of temper, in December 38, he sacked the treasurer, Robert Woodhouse. Ironically, since it was pretty clear that Woodhouse was an energetic and efficient minister, had been doing the best possible job to fulfil quite impossible demands. Further, Edward then proposed to stop the salaries of his civil service in London to save money, but was forced to back down when it became clear that a walk. Woodhouse summed it up when he remarked to a friend, May God be pleased that I shall never again service a master who has so little interest in my efforts and so little concern with the burdens I carry for him. The year closed then, with a great divide between England and the King. While Edward spat nails at his ministers in England, the chronicler Thomas Gray summed up the view in England that Edward had achieved nothing, and that the King in Brabant was, quote, only jousting and having a jolly time. Edward wasn't feeling jolly, though. His allies had agreed at least to a May 39 start, but then delayed it to July instead. Edward's desperation grew as the French planned and executed an assault in the southwest down the Garonne Valley. By April 39, the French had 12,000 men under arms and had established 45 new garrisons in the region. Richard the Lionheart's citadel at Penn finally fell, but the big successes came in the Saintonge. This is a region to the north of Bordeaux and the Gironde. Much of the area, including the largest town of Saint, had been taken from the English in the time of Edward II, but two major towns had held out and remained to the English, Blay and Bourg. Both these towns fell to the French in 39. Edward Seneschal Ingram was under intense pressure. He couldn't compete with the number of troops the French could field. All the revenues from Gascony and Moor were tied up in garrison troops. All around him, the loyalty of the Gascon lords was wavering, with increasing defections happening to the French. And meanwhile, he couldn't reward those who did stay loyal. Some of the petitions from Ingram to Edward survive. An anguished plea for money to pay one lord who'd maintained 600 men for the English without wages at all. Another, whose land was now occupied by the French and lived in penury in English-held Lealbourne. Or petitions from men like William Gordon, who'd lost everything when Borg fell and begged for relief to save his family from starvation. At sea, the picture was a little more mixed. In the Channel, the French held the initiative with a Genoese fleet that scoured the coast, and in particular torched the Sank port of Hastings, a torching which essentially took Hastings 400 years to recover from. But in the North Sea, a character called John Crabbe had some success in capturing French convoys. I feel a brief diversion coming on, because John Crabbe's an interesting example of the kind of personalities the Middle Ages throws up. John Crabbe was probably Flemish, born around 1280. From at least 1306, Crabbe supplemented his trading income with piracy. Edward II constantly complained to the counter-Flanders about these activities, and he'd wring his hands in apology, and then encourage Crabbe to keep right on going as long as he got a cut. 
We often think of Elizabeth I as presiding over an era of state-sponsored piracy. Well, there's nothing new under the sun. Crabbe was then hired by Robert the Bruce in Scotland to harry English shipping, which he did with enormous effectiveness, so much so that he settled in Aberdeen, continuing all the time to sell his plunder through Flanders. But then eventually, in 1332, his luck ran out. He was defeated and captured by Walter Manny at Perth. Now, you might think that would be curtains for our John Crabbe, and indeed the English Parliament demanded restitution. But instead, Edward III offered him a job. Silly not to, thought Crabbe, and put his expertise to use, helping the English besiege Berwick. When the Scots in the town heard this, they killed his son, and Crabbe's switch of allegiance was confirmed. He continued to work for Edward, notably at the Battle of Sloys, which we're coming to, until his death in 1352. The point of this is not just that it's a colourful life, though it is that, but that probably John Crabbe's life was not necessarily that unusual, though maybe a little exaggerated. Kings by no means favoured the rule of law, where it could work in their favour to turn a blind eye. There was a mighty fine line between merchant and pirate, if indeed there really was a line at all. It's no coincidence that the English war fleet was recruited from private merchantmen. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Despite Crabbe and Walter Manny's intervention, the French without doubt used their naval resources to much more effect in 39 than did the English. Their raids on the south coast of England forced Edward's English ministers to invest in coastal defence, using money Edward really, really expected to be coming his way. The fact that it didn't drove him to distraction. He forbade them to spend any money at all except on castles in Scotland or repaying the Bardi and Peruzzi. The answer he got to his instruction was disbelief, and a series of examples of exactly why this instruction was quite impossible to follow. But fair dues, he had a right to be a little anxious. The money situation had moved on. Now it's not just that Edward couldn't pay his dues to his allies, he couldn't pay his own creditors, and no one would lend to him any more. And it seems pretty clear that the men around him in Antwerp were not keen to lift the scales from his eyes, and make him see that he was pursuing a policy he couldn't afford. How much easier to fall into step and blame those rotten officials back in England. In his own words, Edward found his situation, quote, dangerous and humiliating. Just in case you might think there was a chink of sunlight in Scotland, 
Let me just close that one down. Not so. William Douglas continued to squeeze both Edward Balliol and the English forces, leaving only Perth, Stirling and Cooper in the hands north of the Firth of Forth, and by August even Cooper and Perth had gone. Then in July the Bishop of Beauvais launched a concerted attack on the heart of English-held Gascony. He attacked Bordeaux with an army of 15,000 men, light years larger than any force the English could muster. If Bordeaux fell, it was meltdown for the English cause. And at one stage, indeed, the French flag did indeed fly over the town, only for the towers to be recaptured. And by the end of July, the French had to fall back since they didn't have the supplies for a long siege. But it had been a mighty close-run thing. Edward knew that he needed an attack that would take attention away from the southwest. Once again, he called his allies together and demanded that they now attack. He gave them his personal word that he wouldn't leave the Low Countries without paying them their money. But in one way or another, they still refused to march. So, he used the final sanction. Beloved of all parents of young children, he told them he was going anyway, and if they didn't come, they'd be left all alone. He gave the added flounce that at least he'd have died with honour. In the main, the tactic worked. Not for the largest ally, Emperor Ludwig, it has to be said, and also the Duke of Brabant resisted deep in secret negotiations with Philip of France. But once that had failed, he marched and by the end of September caught up with Edward and the main body. Edward marched south from Brabant to the county of Hainault towards the town of Cambrai, which was held against his own count by the French, and he put it under siege. Together, Edward and his allies amounted to an army of something under 15,000 men. Philip VI, meanwhile, advanced with his armies to the borders of France proper, with an army of 25,000 men. Now, what Edward needed was a big victory. Taking Cambrai would be good. A massive victory against the French king, that would really be the thing. To his frustration, by October 39, none of these things really looked like happening. So with allies twittering, Edward bypassed Cambrai and marched south towards France proper. A couple of famous incidents then occurred. First was the desertion of William, Count of Hainault. He was a young man, and he couldn't bring himself to break his homage to the King of France by invading France proper. So he upped sticks and rode off to the French camp, though most of his men stayed with Edward. When he arrived in the French camp, he was probably expecting to arrive to a hero's welcome, but he was in fact treated with complete contempt by Philip, poor lad, and sent to the back of the army. Philip wouldn't speak to him. The second concerned the Pope's cardinals, who regularly tipped up in the English camp trying to arrange truces, which is all very laudable, of course, since in the words of Winston, George Orr is always preferable to war war. The trouble is that the English rarely trusted them to be honest brokers. Most of the cardinals, and indeed the Pope, were French. They identified with the French, and they essentially thought France was way too big and butch to be beaten by the poxy English anyway which was kind of demonstrated on this occasion when the cardinal said to Edward, The kingdom of France is surrounded by a thread of silk which not all the strength of England will break. Duly, he was taken to the top of a tower by Geoffrey Scroop. All around for 15 miles the countryside and the villages burned as the army moved south on a wide front. Do you not think, Scroop said, that this thread of silk about France is already broken? The cardinal apparently fainted with shock. By the 14th of October, 
Edward was east of a town called Peron in France. Philip was close, close enough to attack, and in fact he planned to do just that. But Edward wasn't ready, so when his spies reported the French decision to him, he withdrew to find a better ground to fight on. When morning came then, Philip found the bird had flown. One of the things I found out in researching these podcasts is the emphasis placed by both sides on espionage and the wide-flung network of agents both used, which I guess shouldn't surprise me, since information was as valuable then as it is now. But it seems to be something Edward and his ministers were particularly good at. Philip in particular was livid and snarled, Can I not speak quietly in my private room without the King of England listening? Must he always sit invariably at my side? Sadly, that's really the closest we get to a showdown. The two armies, allied and French, met each other again at a place called La Capelle. Edward had found his ground, drew up his much smaller army at the top of a rise with his flanks defended by woods, and waited. The French army came into view and looked at them, drawn up in battle lines. But Philip wouldn't attack. English battle tactics depended on getting your enemy to attack, especially when so outnumbered, so they couldn't attack themselves. And in a purely practical sense, Philip was absolutely right. So the day wore on and nothing happened. At one stage, a great shout arose as a hare ran between the two armies. In the rear of the French army, they thought the battle was starting, so William of Hainault, with his dunce's hat on, knighted 14 squires, who were contemptuously named the Knights of the Hare by Chronicle Foissard. After a day looking at each other, the Allies, exhausted of food and water, and despite Edward's fury, were forced to simply turn around and go back all the way he'd come, all the way back to Brabant. It was yet more misery for Edward. At the October Parliament in England, it was reported that Edward's debts were now more than £300,000, the equivalent of more than seven parliamentary subsidies. But Parliament simply complained about the brutality of purveyance, and no more money was forthcoming. This is a catastrophe, Edward Wise. For Philip VI, they looked pretty good. But you have to remember the medieval mindset. There was plenty of muttering. Stuff like, Sacre bleu, what kind of a big girl's blouse is Philip then? He has an army twice the size of the English pig dogs, and he says they're common limon. Apologies for the Hackney Franglais thing, but really, there will come a time when this pressure on Philip to live up to the medieval warrior image of kingship will have a major impact on his decision-making. For Edward, the campaign obviously wasn't good, though he made the best of it. He followed time-honoured tradition of declaring victory and throwing a party. But he would have realised that it looked like a poor return for all the money, and he couldn't afford too many more victories like this. But if nothing else, he managed to draw French troops away from the Gascon theatre, which for a while had looked like getting out of hand. And so we come to 1340, a big year in many ways. It starts with a decision that ties England and France to war for the next hundred years. So on the 26th of January 1340, in the Friday market of Ghent, Edward stood on a platform decked with banners that quartered the arms of France with those of England. The crowd around him included the magistrates of the three great towns of Flanders, including Jacob Artevelde. You might notice my pronunciation is slightly different this week from last week, and for that I have Stephen to thank. So thank you, Stephen. Anyway, Edward asked them all in a loud voice if they accepted him as King of England and France, 
all said yes, and the rest of the day was given over to a hooli of celebration and jousting. One contemporary opinion that has reached us from someone who was there described the whole thing as puerile. So how can it come to this? First of all, if you want to understand Edward's claim, have a look at the family tree on the History of England website. We go back to Philip III, King of France. His eldest son was Philip IV, Philip the Fair, whose male line then died out. So they went back to the line of Philip III's next oldest son, who was called Charles of Valois, and they found the next king in his line, i.e. Philip VI. In so doing, they ignored the line of Philip IV's daughters, since they claimed that the French monarchs couldn't come through the female line, though it was perfectly acceptable for this to happen for Norman nobility. Essentially, Edward's point is that he was closer by blood to Philip III than was Philip VI. There has been a deal of debate about whether Edward ever believed that he really did have a better claim. Rightly or wrongly, I don't buy it and I don't believe it. And it's pretty clear that contemporary opinion took a lot of persuading and remained deeply sceptical about his claim. After all, they'd really not pushed the claim when Philip IV died and while Edward II was alive, and Edward III had already done homage to Philip VI before all this kicked off. So if that's the case, why did it happen now? Well, it was all to do with bringing Flanders into the war. Louis, the Count of Flanders, had finally managed to escape his Flemish captors and flee to the French court. Artevelde wanted closer alliance with the English and to fight for Flemish independence, but he had a problem. If he broke his fealty to the French king, Flanders would fall under interdict and a massive fine. More importantly, the world would see him as a rebel. So how much neater then to simply recognise a different king? So that's what they did. In the deal, the Flemish agreed to contribute 80,000 men, for which Edward would pay £140,000. Quite where Edward thought he would get the money, no one knows. Edward would claim the throne of France to help the Flemish case, though it's worth noting that the Pope took not one blind bit of notice of any niceties like that. As far as he was concerned... Edward's claim was simply hogwash. And anyway, vive la France. By April 1340, Flanders was under interdict. Philip VI declared economic sanctions and did his best to persuade Flemish nobles to leave Flanders and come to his side. Outside of the big three towns, many did just that. The county of Artois, to the south of Flanders, was boiling with discontented Flemish nobles looking to slip a knife between Artevelde's ribs. Edward used the occasion to make his pitch to the French people. He'd work with the assent of the people. He'd respect their liberties. He'd stop the constant devaluation of the coinage the French kings had carried out to raise money. In England, interestingly, his claim wasn't something he talked about much. It cut no more ice in England than it did in France. Was it a good move? The Flemish were to be enthusiastic supporters of the English cause for a while, and to an extent, since Edward had been talking about Philip of Valois having usurped Edward's rights, maybe it just put the icing on the cake. It gave Edward's war a patina of legitimacy that was generally helpful, and it was indeed a powerful bargaining chip. However, it did rather complicate the negotiations. It was difficult to bargain for a land settlement when your argument was that it was all your land anyway. The biggest thing was, 
that it escalated this contest from an argument about the sovereignty of Aquitaine, which is, after all, an argument we've had many times before, into a massive row about the sovereignty of all France itself. This proved much, much more difficult to walk away from, and the result was over a hundred years of war. After the fun and pageantry of claiming the throne, reality for Edward came in the form of a report of the Proceedings of Parliament in January 1314. Despite Edward's desperate need of money, they wouldn't grant him any more, unless they could attach a lot of strings. The King's ministers simply couldn't agree to those strings. They needed Edward himself. For Edward, he may have begun to realise that he'd lost control of public opinion, which in the first years of his reign had been his forte. He needed to get back there, but he was bonded to his allies to stay in the Low Countries until he'd paid his debts, and his debts were legion. In the end, he managed to extricate himself, but in the most humiliating of terms. He had to leave behind as hostages his pregnant wife and his younger son and the earls of Salisbury and Suffolk. These were hideous terms, but ones he just couldn't afford to refuse. So he took the terms. He sent orders for Parliament to be summoned for March, and he took ship for England. Which seems like a good place to leave it. Next week, we'll see how Edward's fortunes develop. We'll cover the great naval battle of Sloys and the less great siege of Ternai. Until then, as ever, my grateful thanks to everyone who commented on the websites, or on the iTunes, or joins the Facebook group, or indeed to all of you for listening. Good luck though, everyone, and have a great fortnight. Or send night. Whatever. <laughs>